Good morning and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host Allison Joseph, also known as Jew in the City. If you are a long time listener, you know here at Jew in the City that we aim to reverse negative associations about religious Jews and make engaging and meaningful orthodoxy known and accessible. Um, we do this by, well, on our website, we do this by you know, dealing with difficult parts of the Torah and Halacha, by um, showing how enjoyable a kosher and modest life can be, um, and by highlighting people that are living their dreams and doing lots of cool things, both in terms of their careers and in terms of hobbies. Um, and on this show, we like to get a chance to speak to people that are making the world a better place, that are getting a chance to express themselves in some way. And it's especially neat when um, what they do has some notoriety outside of the Jewish world. Not that that is what matters in life, but um, it's kind of cool. And, um, and I think that um, even if there's a shallowness to it, um, being recognized in the world at large um, is something that human beings like to be able to do, like to know that it can be done. Um, and I think ultimately if we're going to show the world that Orthodox Judaism can be relevant um, and engaging in the world today, um, People have to be able to have big dreams and have them know that there can be big successes. Um, and so with that intro, um, we are speaking today to a fabulous woman named Rena Rosner, who wrote a book, um, sort of a fantasy novel, which is um, unabashedly Jewish, um, as she said herself, called The Sisters of the Winter Wood. Um, and although it's very Jewish and uh, quite orthodox, it's getting quite a bit of critical acclaim in the world at large. And so we are bringing Rena here today to talk a little bit about, um, you know, her story and her personal story, and then her story of sisters in the winter wood. So, Rena, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So, um, if you can just start us off to tell us a little bit about your personal story before um, you got to your um, fantasy story. So, where did you grow up, um, and you know what what was your Jewish background growing up? Sure. So um, I'm originally like born and raised um, in Miami Beach, Florida, and um, I went to Hebrew Academy in Miami Beach. My, I guess what you would call modern Orthodox. Um, I'm like I feel like I'm less familiar with the American labels now because I, I now I live in Israel and I've been here for the past 15 years. Um, my family moved to Israel when I was little. We lived there for four or five years, and then we went back to Miami. Um, so my accent. <laughs> And the culture in my house will forever remain American, even though I've lived in Israel for quite a long time now. Um, but um, I grew up from, and the one thing that always bothered me was that uh, I never got to see, you know, myself as an Orthodox Jewish teen represented in the pages of novels, except for, like, you know, old classics like All of a Kind Family, maybe, or, like, The Chosen, which even then wasn't, you know, a female main character. Um, but I was also an avid reader of fantasy, and I never, ever saw, you know, an Orthodox teen represented in a positive light or even in a negative light being the heroine of her own fairy tale. And um, that was sort of what moved me to um, to write this book. It's so interesting because um, I think that the world at large um, is aware of minorities and aware of mistreatments of minorities, and I think overall... Um, although maybe sometimes it can go too far, but I think overall we're living in more just time. People are trying to be more sensitive, uh, you know, about things they might not have cared about before, but I think sort of the religious community, and this is Jewish and Christian, um, Muslims I think might get a little bit of a different treatment, but 
students of a religious community is kind of the last minority that doesn't really get that same treatment of being, I don't know, being people being sensitive towards them, people being represented in media. So, um, I mean, certainly um, being represented and telling us, you know, getting a story told from the perspective of the insider is completely um, speaks to me with all that we've done at Jew in the City. So um, I really love that. So next, tell me about um, your uh, sort of um, journey into writing. When did you realize you were a writer? Um, what what went on before um, you published this, you know, novel to critical acclaim? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I've known I wanted to be a writer actually my whole life. From the earliest, <clears throat> literally when I was eight years old and, you know, first started to read and write, um, I knew that this was what I wanted to do. But, of course, life always takes us on a circuitous path. And um, I didn't, you know published novel at age 18. <laughs> um, I studied at Johns Hopkins University in the writing department because I knew that, that I wanted to be a writer and that was what I wanted to do. I actually skipped my senior year and went to Johns Hopkins at 17 to study in the writing department. And Chaim Potok was one of my teachers. I was extremely lucky. He passed away about two years after I had had him as a teacher for two years. And, um, and that was an incredible experience. I was super lucky to have had that. Uh, but also, you know, being in Baltimore... You know, it wasn't a hardship. The other school at the time that was known as being, you know, um, one of the most respective writing programs then, now there are so many MFA programs out there, um, but then it was Iowa and Johns Hopkins, and I didn't, I was like, what am I going to do with an Orthodox Jew in Iowa? You know, not that I couldn't have done it, but it would have been a real challenge. Um, So Baltimore was great to me, Um, and growing up in Miami Beach was wonderful in some ways and difficult in other ways. Um, I had teachers and mentors who were really, really wonderful, um, who recognized the talent in me when I was young and sort of put my, my short stories and poems up for awards and stuff like that. And so I got a lot of feedback even early on that I knew, you know, that, that I, there was something here. At the same time, I actually really struggled in high school um, with NCSY and rabbis, and, you know, it was a wonderful influence on my life. And I actually was, like, regional vice president and stuff like that, but... People who said, oh, great, you can write for our scroll in fell time. And I was like, that's not what I want to do with my life. You know, I have bigger dreams. And they were like, no, but we need books that are well-written, that are about, you know, that are appropriate for, that people can read on Travis. And I was like, yeah, that's not what I want to do with my life, though. And, um, and it was a struggle to, you know, decide to go to Johns Hopkins, not to go to seminary. All my friends went to seminary. I was the only one in my class who didn't. But to say, no, I want to study writing, and I have bigger dreams. Um, and then from that to where I am today, there's a lot of years. I wrote two other novels before this one was published, um, that had an agent that had, um, that had editors fall in love with them, but they didn't make it past the editorial board. I got really, really close. Like I knew I had what it took and they were all with Orthodox characters, Orthodox main, female Orthodox main characters. But, um, it took until this book for it to finally happen. I did publish a cookbook about four years ago called Eating the Bible, which was based on three years of columns I wrote in the Jerusalem Post where I connected the Parsha, um, a verse from the Parsha with, um, with a recipe, uh, and a Jvartora. For me, that was kind of like a way of recleaning the kitchen. I felt like my husband would take five, ten minutes before we sat down for a meal and all of a sudden have a Jvartora, and I would spend eight to ten hours in the kitchen preparing for Shabbat, and I would come to the table and have nothing to say. And I had spent a lot more time preparing, and I wanted to create a a way for women and men, for anybody really, you know, to be able to kind of 
read something while they cook to enrich their cooking with like the very Torah and then and then have something to bring to the table and be like actually this food that I made is from the Parsha and here's a conversation we can have um, and that was just a kind of fun side thing but it never took away from my desire to actually ever get a novel published and uh, and, and here I am to be proud. <laughs> Um, so, so um, in terms of, you know, I think it's fascinating that, that you're saying that um, you wrote a couple books um, that didn't get as far first. And I think for anyone uh, listening who um, has maybe not hit it big yet for whatever their dream is, it's so important to hear about the, the failures before the successes because, um, you know, success takes time. People, like, when they meet me, they're like, oh, is this Jew in the City thing a new thing? I'm like over 10 years old really yeah 10 years of hard work so what didn't work about the first couple novels and what do you think worked about this uh this one that did um i mean it's a couple things on the one hand we talk about publishing um <clears throat> i work as a literary agent now in jerusalem so i've been a literary agent at the deborah harris agency for seven years um now and uh and we talk about in publishing about you know, getting a book published is a combination of the right time, the right place, the right editor, and just like a whole lot of luck. Can I point to things that didn't work in those novels? Not really, because they really got that close. They, they both had editors at major publishing houses that fell in love with them. It just wasn't the right time, you know? And this book, <clears throat> I think, was right for a number of reasons. One, it's a story about resistance um, and also about, you know, Jewish life, not about Jewish death. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about right now about how there's so many Jewish novels out there that are about the Holocaust, and that seems to sometimes be the only thing we can talk about, you know, this, and it's important and it's critical. And I, as an agent, represented a book this year, um, a memoir about the Holocaust, and we, we need to keep telling these stories, but at the same time, there are so many other stories, and they don't seem to see the light of day in the same way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that was part of it. But another big part of it was me saying, I'm going to do something totally different. My other two novels were like literary, adult fiction, you know, not fantasy. And this was me saying, I'm going to write this book that's going to be the most me of any book I've written. It's going to be unapologetically Jewish. It's just going to be my heart and soul on the page. It's going to be something that I wish had been there for me when I was a teen. And I'm going to shut out all the noise and just do it. And whatever happens, happens. At least I'll be happy with it. And so I think there is... A combination of things. Yeah, you have to hit the right the market at the right time, the right place, you know. But I think at the same time, if you spend too much time thinking about what's going to work and what's not going to work, you won't write the project that's the most authentically you. And often that's the project that shines the most, and often that's the project that's going to get published. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, yeah, like think about the market. On the other hand, you just got to do you. <laughs> and you have to be authentically yourself to the best that you can be. Totally. I want to just give our uh, listeners just a little excerpt from the book so they know a little more about it before we uh, delve deeper. Mm-hmm. The Sisters of the Winter Wood by Rita Rosner. Um, Reads in a small village surrounded by vast forests, Leva and Leia have lived a peaceful, sheltered life, even if they've heard of troubling times for Jews elsewhere. When their parents travel to visit their dying grandfather, the sisters are left behind in their home in the woods. But before they leave, Leva discovers that the secret that their tati can transform into a bear and their mommy into a swan. Perhaps Libra realizes the old fairy tales are true. She must guard this secret carefully, even from her beloved sister. Soon a troop of mysterious men appear in town, and Leia falls under the spell, despite their mother's warning to be wary of strangers. And these are not only dangers lurking in the woods, 
will need each other there to become the women they need to be and save their people from the dark forces that draw closer. So that's just sort of a little um, excerpt from the book. And then um, what I think also is that in terms of you know, critical acclaim, um, which is amazing if you put this up on Amazon, uh, Publisher Weekly says, uh, intricately crafted, gorgeously rendered, full of heart, history, and enchantment. Uh, Kirkus Review says, Rosler's debut weaves a richly detailed story of Jewish identity and sisterhood, emotionally charged, full of sharp historical detail and well-deployed Yiddish phrases, ambitious and surprising. So where, besides the fact that you liked um, fantasy and you are Jewish, um, where did this idea come from? I mean, like, you know, parents turning into animals um, is pretty surprising. Mm -hmm. So, like, where, where did this uh, come from? So I think that, you know, the Hasidic tale, you know, people talk about, like, why is there no Jewish fantasy? You know, why don't we have a Narnia, stuff like that? And I think that that's, like, a really big misconception. I think tremendous amount of fantasy that's a part of our state. Um, from but, prophets but, wait, what's a fantasy? Golem. Can you say that again? I missed that. I think there's a tremendous amount of, prop, of, of fantasy that's already in our faith. Um, from prophecy, right, to miracles, to prayer, you know, as, as a way of saying words and having them somehow believing that they will affect the world around us. There's already a lot of stuff that's fantastical in nature and magical in nature that we believe in and that's a part of our faith, that's in the Bible, that's in you know, the Midrashim, right, that's in the Talmud. Um, but I wanted to take it all a bit further. And, you know, one of the things that inspired me were the Hasidic tales. Um, I definitely, you know, have sort of found my Judaism and found myself more in, like, um, Hasidism. And um, whether it's connections with more, like, Breslov thought and Chabad thinking, um, but also teachers who brought before me all sorts of Hasidic stories and tales. And... Um, the Hasidic tale is basically a miracle story, right? Every Hasidic tale, there's something that happens. Kapitat Hederek, right? Somebody jumps, gets, travels a very long distance in a short amount of time, or somebody's healed from illness, or, you know, this is what the Hasidic tale is. And um, there's a Chabad tale about the Shpoler's baby that he danced in a bear skin to save another Jew, right? There was a Jew, and the landowner was demanding taxes from him, you know, fairly or unfairly, he couldn't pay. And he was challenged to dance in the skin of a bear against a bear. And if we could outdance the bear, then he wouldn't have to pay the landowner. And the Spoiler Zadie, um, he would dance on behalf of the Jew in a bear skin, and he could outdance the bear. And that was like the miracle that happened. And, and I said in my head, well, how far is it to make the leap from that saying that he could actually transform into a bear? Um, I think that as Jews, we've always done miraculous things through every generation in order to... Um, remain faithful in order to keep our faith, but also in order to survive. How many of us have stories of um, incredible survival, incredible odds? Every single one of us who's a Jew today is a miracle because there's no other way, there's no other way to explain, right, how we are here today because somebody somewhere did something incredible, something brave, you know, traveled across deserts or forests, um, you know, made their way by boat or by raft or you know, um, left their entire family and, and traveled alone to a foreign land and then brought their family after them, survived hiding in the forest, you know. Um, and so to me, it was just pushing the envelope a tiny bit more to say, well, if we could, you know, kind of shapeshift the way we sort of do, right? Every country we move into, we take on the culture of that place. We take on the language of that place. It's what Jews do. That's how we survive. 
you know, how far is it to push the envelope and say that, you know, somebody could come up there too. Very cool. Um, so, you know, this was the first book that you, you said the first you didn't get past the editorial book. This is the first one that got published, but not all books that get published um, do so well or are so popular with a larger audience. So um, when... Thank I guess, God, the, yes. <laughs> so what's the timeline of, um, you know, going to print and then, like, what happened that, I mean, other than obviously it's a great book. And content is king, I believe, in you know whatever platform you're on. Mm-hmm. But when did you start to notice that maybe this was going to be bigger? I mean, obviously, I guess you probably had hopes and dreams that it would be big. But when did it go from just kind of going out there to seeing that this was actually starting to um, take off and and get you know critical acclaim? Well, uh, in publishing, you know, there's all these different sort of touchstones that happen in the path of a book. Um, the first one is, you know, an editor falling in love and making an offer. I ended up, my book sold at auction between a bunch of different houses um, who all fell in love with it, and they were all adult fantasy houses. I thought I'd written a young adult fantasy novel, and it ended up selling at auction between three adult houses. So that's one sort of step where you know more than one person is, in, is interested in your story, more than one major publishing house. But even that's not enough. As a literary agent, I know that that's not always enough. You know, there are books that have that are fought over and then don't necessarily do so well. Uh, a lot of it's the publisher and the hype that they put behind it um, and the money that they put behind it. But it also then needs to pass through all sorts of other hoops like sales and marketing and sales reps, like the person who buys for Barnes & Noble has to read it and like it and then decide how many copies to order and stuff like that. I think it's a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff people don't know about publishing. Yeah. And so you can put all the money you want behind a book and, you know, um, get really excited and talk it up and whatever, but if it doesn't deliver on the read, then it's not going to be in stores because there are still people who then have to buy it for the stores and they have to like it. It's not obvious that every book that's published ends up in all the stores. And so, you know, the excitement starts to build. Then I was brought in in March um, to speak at, at the sales conference that they have. They have the publisher's big sales conference and not every publisher does this. Not every publisher brings in authors, but that's basically, that was when they told me that I was, like, the lead title for the house. Mm-hmm. And so then you're like, oh, okay, this is getting big, you know. But even then, that wasn't people buying it. That was just sales reps being excited about it. That was just publisher choosing it, you know. Right. Um, but then you start to get blurbs, and then you start to get early reviews. And I was at Book Expo, and I signed, they gave out a 1,000 galleys at Book Expo. That was also huge. So it's a build. You can't point to any one thing. Um, you know, and then the reviews start to come out, and the reviews were so fabulous. But even then, you still have to, like, hope that when the book actually comes out, that people buy it. Right. And, uh, you know, thank God. I haven't hit the New York Times bestseller list, but the book is doing really well. All right. Well, God willing, that's something to shoot for. Do you yeah. think that your um, your orthodox background um, made you stand out more in terms of an author or made it more difficult or had no effect on sort of this process? You know, I don't know. I mean, I used to say that I thought maybe my previous two books didn't sell because they were too Jewish or too Israeli, um, they were, because they were both set in Israel, and this one sort of isn't. But I don't think that's true anymore. Um, from what I know about publishing, I think that it just wasn't the right time. It just wasn't the right book at the right time, and uh, and this book was. I think that you can be unapologetically yourself and still get published, um, and, and this proves that more than anything. Orthodox teens 
you know, it was so important to me to get the representation right because I feel so often, even when we see Orthodox Jews depicted in books, you know, there'll always be something like a tell, you know, that, that it's like, actually, that's not quite how we celebrate Shabbat or that's not quite right or something spelled wrong to the point that even when they recorded the audio book, I, I chose the narrator and she was wonderful. They gave me options, but then I said, can I just listen to the whole audiobook before you publish it? Because I want to make sure that all the, everything's, you know, pronounced right. And it took me, it was 20 hours of, of clips to listen to. And I had so much to correct. And not because it was terrible, but just because I was like, not on my watch. This is not, right. you can't get this wrong on my watch. You know, right. I finally have the opportunity to bring this very Jewish novel out there. And you can't say Kaddish instead of Kaddish. You just right. can't. I won't let it happen, you know? Yeah. Um, so that was a process, too, making sure all those pronunciations are correct. So I haven't listened to it once they were all corrected. So if there's something wrong, I don't want to know at this point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I did my part. I tried as hard as I could to, to get it right because that's just so important to me. And I feel like, you know, yeah, I am like a bit of an ambassador now to be able to be out there and, and, and talk about, you know, my religion and my orthodoxy so openly, you know, that it's really important that I get it right. So um, you in in your bio um, you mentioned your eight, your uh, eight great grandparents immigrated to America to escape the pogroms in towns like Duba Ferry and Kibalmacha, right? Um, other than you know shape shifting, which they didn't literally do, are there any points in the novel that you can point to? Oh, that's my grandmother, my great grandmother's story. That's my great grandfather's story. Mm-hmm. So when I originally started writing this this book, I was I was moved a long, long time ago, talking like six years ago, I start, first started kind of putting down notes for it. I always have like side projects and ideas and things that are out there. I was about, from the moment I decided to actually sit down and write this, it was about a year um, of writing it. But I had originally wanted to write a fairy tale retelling of Christina Rossetti's Goblin Market poem and set it in France and have it be not Jewish at all. That was the original plan. I was like, maybe I just need to not do anything Jewish. So I worked on that, and I wrote the bare bones of that, and I read it, and I woke up my husband in the middle of the night, and I said, my book doesn't have a soul. And he was like, Rena, go back to sleep. And then the next night, I wrote him, woke him up in the middle of the night, and I said, I think I need to put Yiddish into my book. And he again was like, Rena, go back to sleep, you know? Um, but that was, I realized that, that, that my book was empty, you know, that without my soul, it wasn't going to have a soul. And uh, I started to look into my own family's history and heritage to see where could I set it instead of France, which has nothing to do with me. Um, but I think part of it also came from this sort of growing movement that we're seeing um, out here, you know, in the literary world about what we call, like, you know, own voices stories. And partly I was driven by the idea of, like, what is a story that only I can tell, you know? And I started to read these genealogy books, like some cousins in my family on both sides had done books of genealogy of our family history. And I, sadly, embarrassingly, had never read them. You know, um, my parents were born in America. My grandparents were born in America. My great-grandparents, were, many of them came across the boat as children. Like, I never knew anybody in my family with an accent. And I know that's very different from Jews who can trace their background, you know, um, to, uh, you know, from the Holocaust or, or, you know, things like that. Because, um, you know, or from, um, from Iran or, you know, there are people who... It was their grandparents who, who fled, you know. But in my family, it wasn't. And I never felt connected to what, what we call the old country. And anyway, that was when I read about the town of Dubasari. And in the town of Dubasari, um, my mother's father's family came from this town. Um, his name was, my, my great-grandfather's name was Abraham Krovis. And his brother 
um, after the pogroms, which started in Kishinev, but actually the Kishinev pogrom started because a, a body, the body of a young Christian boy was found drained of blood in the garden of a Jewish man from the town of Dubasari, and the Jews were blamed. And as a result, the first pogrom happened in Kishinev. And after Kishinev, I mean, not the first pogrom in history, obviously, there's been many waves of pogroms, but in, in 1903, in that wave. And after Kishinev, the next pogrom was supposed to come to Dubasari. And the Jews of the town organized themselves into a self-defense organization, and they fought back, and a pogrom never happened in Dubasari. And when I read that, I said, that's my story. I said, that's a story. It's a story of Jewish life. It's a story of resistance. And I'm going to have two Orthodox teen sisters lead the charge. You know, they're going to save their town. And it was important to me to do that because I think that there are so many stories about Jewish women that have been lost to the sands of time, and this isn't necessarily only like a Jewish thing. Um, many of the stories of women throughout history have been lost because the, the people who have written down stories historically have mostly been men. And so the only way we sort of have to reimagine, first of all, shtetl life, which has gone to us, right, um, but also to reimagine the lives of Jewish women in these times is, is sort of by, it has to be a kind of fantasy, right? Because we don't have access to what really happened or how it happened. But I think in that space, it gives us opportunity to kind of imagine what we want to imagine. Um, at the same time, my book, surprisingly, was like reviewed by the Historical Novel Society, and they gave it like a really glowing review, which shocked me because it's, it, I outright say it's a fantasy novel. Um, so that felt really good, you know, that I definitely did my research, and it's definitely based yeah. on a tremendous amount of historical research. <clears throat> so, but I think that, and I did a tremendous amount of research about the town of Dubasari. There's, there's Yisker, a very, very um, long and detailed Yisker book that's available about the town that people wrote after the Holocaust, um, of their memories of the town, and that sort of thing. But I think that sometimes the only access we have to what might have happened, what could have happened, especially in the lives of women, is by imagining it. Mm -hmm. um, and um, we've got about two minutes left, so um, I'm not sure mm -hmm. if this question is annoying when people say, what's next? But do you have yeah. a, a what's next? Is that sure. something that uh, I am thinking about, or do you want to take a little 60,000 words in <laughs> to book two. This was bought in a two book deal, oh, wow. so there is another book coming. Mm-hmm. Um, Amazing. And it's also going to be based on um, fantasy and folklore, um, Jewish mythology and folklore. Uh, it's actually set in Romania. And, uh, yeah, I'm about two-thirds, three-quarters of the way done. Amazing. All right. Well, we will. So do you, do you have, like, a an approximate date that it's expected to um, go to print? That I don't have a cup date or a title yet. We're still working on that. I'm hoping, um, but it, we're hoping it should be by the end of next year. Um, I don't know if it's October, November, December, but something like that. Yeah. All right. Well, in the meantime, our listeners can go to really any online or physical store that sells books and look for the Sisters of the Winter Wood. Irina Rosner, and um, we wish you uh, continued success, and um, it's really uh, incredible, and I hope that uh, your story, you. telling your story authentically has inspired some of our listeners to uh, tell their stories authentically as well. Me too. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us, and, um, and thank you all for listening, and you can catch us same time, same place next week. Bye-bye.